your Bibles there. And um, if Bill and Susie has, have to rush out, I just want you to know ahead of time that they are planning to be pre-offended. So just know if they're leaving, that's what's really going on. They tried to tell me it had to do with it, childbirth, family stuff, I don't know. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32, which we will pick up right where we left off from Sunday morning. If you haven't been with us yet, we are in the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book of Torah, of, the, of what we call the Pentateuch. Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, what the Jews call the Tanakh. And Torah is powerful and profound, and from Genesis through Deuteronomy, I think so necessary for our faith. Well, verse 32 of uh, Genesis, of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, Moses says, since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire just as you have heard and survived? Or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Out of the heavens he let you hear his voice to discipline you, and on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words from the midst of the fire because he loved your fathers. Therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. Man, that preaches which is good because Moses is preaching. And with that, Moses sums up the retrospective introduction of this great sermon. He does so after all we've read so far in these first four chapters by reminding the people, listen, that the journey through the wilderness, after all, was all about the Lord, that he was the point that seeing him and, and hearing him and following him and learning of him across 40 years was the whole point of the trip. It was never about making the Jewish people feel some sense of personal piety or self-righteousness. It wasn't about testing to prove to see if they might be good enough to ultimately enter the promised land because they weren't good enough any more than you or I would be good enough. Everything in this story is measured in terms of God's love. It's measured in terms of God's choice of a people, God's character, God's person. It's that they might know him. These are the words, Moses speaks of, for, and about the Lord. He's the point. When we study scripture, if we get off from that, we get off. 
we lose focus, we lose direction. When we recognize and stay focused that this is about Jesus, that the word of God is about God and is about helping us to come near to God, everything begins to fall into place. Faith grows. Hope endures. Love is planted and and, and bears fruit when it's about the Lord. When I take this and make it about me, I wander in all sorts of directions. In fact, honestly, when I take this book and I make it about me, I start to get a little bored because there's an awful lot of stuff I got to remember and commands I got to do and things I have to make myself prove to myself and the rest of the world that I'm a good little Christian. It's not about me and it's not about you. It is about Jesus Christ. It's about the Lord. And again in verse 39, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below and there is no other. Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I am the Lord and there is no savior besides me. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the savior. Uh Uh-huh. John chapter six, verse 68, after Jesus has just preached to a mass crowd of people who came for a free lunch. After Jesus has just explained to them, here's the deal, you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. And after all these people were offended, and John chapter six, verse 66, ironically says, many disciples left him that day. After all of that, Peter turns to Jesus, after Jesus even says to his own disciples, to the 12, he says, you guys don't wanna leave too, do you? Door's open. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Just as Moses said, there is no other. Are you at that point in your faith where you realize, wow, there really is no other? It's not even a matter of, I like Christianity a little more than, say, Buddhism, or maybe a little better than than Judaism before it. I I like my Christian faith more than these other options. Or, Or are you at the point where you say, there isn't anything else? I mean, it's Jesus or nothing. It's God the Father as he reveals himself through the Holy Bible or forget the whole thing because there's nothing else. There's nowhere else to go. There's no end point other than him. There is no other. In verse 40, Moses says, so you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Note this, for all Time. And what's really interesting is I don't hear any qualifier in that verse. Uh, yes, I do in, in the first half. He says, uh, keep, my command, or keep his commandments that it may go well with you. So there is kind of a, there's a condition there. And as we've talked about, the Mosaic covenant, this particular covenant with Israel is conditional. It's the only one that is, by the way, of all the covenants of God, this is the only conditional covenant. And in this one, he says, you gotta keep my commandments to live in the land. If you don't keep my commandments, you're gonna be driven out of the land. So that's the if then. But at the end, he says, this is the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And that is not conditioned on their behavior. And that is not conditioned on what they do. That is God saying, this is your land. You're gonna be driven out from it. If you don't keep the commands, this is the Mosaic Covenant. And I'm trying to show you something, show the world something, which is what? That you can't keep my commandments. The commandment's given so that the trespass would increase, 
But where the trespass increased, grace increased all the more. And so what the Lord is doing is fantastic here. He's, he's choosing, he's calling Israel, making them an example so that we all, along with Israel, would understand, wow, none of us are righteous, no, not one. We can't keep the commandments. We're not good enough. If it's left up to us, we're booted from the land. But God says, and yet the land is yours for all time because there's something bigger than law, and that is grace. And the grace of God is at work here in amazing ways. Verse 41, then Moses set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east, that a manslayer, so someone who accidentally kills someone, it's not on purpose, it's manslaughter as we would call it, that he might flee there, who unintentionally slew his neighbor without having enmity toward him in time past, and by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Betzer, in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites, and Ramot, in Gilead, often called Ramot Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. This is interesting. 48 cities, you may recall back in Numbers 35, 48 cities are given to the Levites. They're not given land, they're given cities in and among all the children of Israel so there would be priests spread throughout the land. 48 cities, six of these called cities of refuge where someone fleeing who had been, you know, the cause of manslaughter can flee. And all these cities, by the way, were at least a day's journey away from each other. So they would flee to this place that the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, who's also called the Blood Avenger, somebody call Marvel, that's a great name for a superhero, the Blood Avenger. The Blood Avenger had the right to take this person's life, but they could flee to the city of refuge and be safe there and be protected there through jurisprudence, through the law, and through the justice system until they were shown to be guilt-free. Even if they're shown to be innocent, they had to stay in that city the rest of their life or until the high priest died. It's a whole thing. So 48 cities, six of them are cities of refuge so that the manslayer could run. But note this, this is curious to me that Moses sets three of these six cities on the east side of the Jordan. One for Reuben, one for Gad, one for the half-tribe of Manasseh, three on the east side. That leaves three cities that he now puts or will put on the west side for all the rest of the tribes. Three cities of refuge for three tribes, really two and a half tribes, and then three cities of refuge for the other nine and a half tribes. That just doesn't seem fair at all. Here's the thing, the further out we get from the promises of God, the greater the problems of sin. Moses is anticipating they're gonna need those cities more on the east side of the Jordan than we're gonna need them on the west side of the Jordan because on the east side they are further out. They're out there more to the wilderness, they're less protected. It's gonna be a little wilder out there for Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. So we're going to give them three cities of refuge because they're going to need it. And the truism is the same today. The further we get out from the promises of God, the greater the problems of sin. And by the way, the greater the need for a priestly intervention. They're going to need priestly intervention close by, at hand, for all three of those tribes outside of the promised land uh, proper. And it's the same for us that we get out from the promises of God. We get away from the promises of God and the problems of sin increase. And you know what we need? We need a priest. We don't need a pastor. We don't need a priest in terms of a, a human being. We need our great high priest, Jesus Christ, because he is our refuge. He's our city of refuge, if you will. Not a city that we run to a day's journey away. 
No, our high priest Jesus is as close as a cry. He is as present as a plea. He is immediate. Even when we get out away from the Lord and find ourselves stuck in sin. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So three cities on the east side, three on the west side, and picking up in verse 44, Moses says, now this is the law which Moses set, or the, the Deuteronomy tells us, this is the law which Moses set before the sons of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the ordinances which Moses spoke to the sons of Israel when they came out from Egypt. Across the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, remember they took them out, who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the sons of Israel defeated when they came out from Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Who remembers what Og means? Anyone? Pancake. Og means pancake, big pancake man. That was Og's name. Og, king of Bashan. These are the important theological truths I want to make sure you all get. Og the pancake king. So they took him out, the two kings of the Amorites who were across the Jordan to the east, verse 48, from Eroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, even as far as Mount Zion, that is Hermon. Mount Hermon is the biggest mountain in Israel today. It is in the far north of the land. So as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there's, there's quite a bit of land that God gave to the far north that we don't often even think about that was originally included in the promised land. With all the Arabah, Arabah just means desert, across the Jordan to the east, even as far as the Sea of the Arabah, you might know that's the Dead Sea, at the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and that's the mountain that Moses would climb to see all of, of Israel before he died. And verse one of chapter five, then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. And looking back, Moses looks ahead, and he realizes and he proclaims that the, the divine perspective here, God's perspective, and that is that God knew, even as he gave the covenant to first-generation Israel, that it truly was going to be a covenant for second-generation Israel. Because first-generation Israel would rebel and violate the covenant before it was even set in place. He knew that they would rebel. Moses explains this now, that truly when that covenant was given, many of y'all were little kids at the time, Moses might have said, but God was making the covenant with you as he is with us today. In fact, notice he says with us twice, verses two and three, and says those of us again in verse three. So he switches perspective there. Deuteronomy, I remind you again, hot devarim is the restatement and the renewal of the covenant and the commandments at Horeb. And yet it's also more. Verse four, the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. While I was standing between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. 
Moses says, you are face to face with the Lord. Now understand that's a, a euphemistic phrase. It's panim panim, and it literally means or describes a direct and personal form of covenant making. All of this is written as a covenant. In fact, I'm not really gonna get into much of this, but historically, if you look at historical documents from the time, 34, 3,500 years ago, if you look at documents from the Hittites and documents from the Canaanites and documents that we still have to this day of old ancient covenants made, there was a style to it. There was a way it was written. One of the great proofs that Deuteronomy is legitimately written by Moses and, and trails all the way back to that time is that Deuteronomy is written in the style of the covenant making 3,500 years ago. And part of that is declaring that this is face to face. This is a direct and personal covenant that God made with Israel. But again, it's with us, Moses says. With us, those of us alive here today. In other words, this ain't your parents' faith. How about you? Is that true with you? Is it your faith or is it your parents' faith? And most of you here tonight, I'm assuming it's your faith. But the reality is an awful lot of people run in the world thinking their parents' faith is fine and it doesn't cut it. It's not a relationship with God unless it's yours, unless it's personal, unless it's panim panim, face to face, direct and personal with the Lord. And so this is you, second generation Israel. Moses is saying face to face, this is a covenant with you. God is making this with you. And he said, verse six, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, that is Elkanah. Remember that word for jealousy, only used of God in the scriptures. There are other words that indicate jealousy among humans, you know, fearful and, and doubting and, and untrustworthy. That's not God's jealousy. His jealousy is a passionate love. And so I am a jealous God visiting iniquity of the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing kindness to thousands, implication of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And, and I'm just gonna point this out because you may or may not have heard this, but a lot of people get upset when they see that God is gonna visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Why is it the children's fault? And the reality is the language, what he's saying is he's the God who visits every generation to see, are you staying with the sins of the previous generation or have you chosen me? So it's not that he's forcing the sin of the fathers on the children. He's coming to the children to give them the same chance that the fathers had to the third and fourth generation. And if you love me, thousands of generations will be blessed by that love. Verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day, verse 12, to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt 
And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day, Moses inserts. And then continuing with the Lord, verse 16, honor your father and your mothers, the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And I gotta tell you, it is so tempting just to read through the book of Deuteronomy and call it good. Because it's already a sermon. For me to sermonize on a sermon is, is an interesting thought. But Moses is preaching, and he's preaching profoundly here, and you know what he's just done? He's now just repeated the 10 words, the 10 commandments, taking them all the way from the top to the bottom. And the reason he does it, this is not, again, just a restatement. What Moses is doing in this sermon is giving us an outline of what he's about to talk about. He is now going to apply following this chapter and especially getting on up around chapters 10, 11, 12, on through chapter 26. He's gonna start applying all of the 10 commandments in order, one after another, and you will follow the flow, and we'll see this as we get further in our study of this great book, Lord willing. But these are now the outline for the next part, part two of the sermon. The first part was a retrospective, chapters one through four, and now we're getting into the relevance of the law. Note this, just a couple of things, as we look back over the Ten Commandments one more time, that Moses already applied, gave application to the first two words. The first two commands, you shall have no other gods before me. And verse eight, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Any likeness of what is in heaven or on the earth, beneath or in the water, underneath the earth. None of that. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. First and second word, no other gods before me, no idols. And we talked about these on Sunday quite a bit. We looked at this. Interesting. It was interesting, actually, to hear some reactions from Sunday morning. Uh, I guess I stirred it up a little bit. That's okay. No other gods, no idols, no form, no images of any kind. And Moses was so specific that back in chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, he went straight through creation to explain what was not to be made into a form, an idol, or an image of any kind. He started with male and female. He went to animals, birds, creeping things, fish, and then stars, moon, and sun, which is actually the opposite order of the creation, which actually began with the creation of stars, moon, and sun, and then fish, creeping things, birds, animals, male and female. But Moses covers them all and says, you are not to make an idol an image, a form. He uses, by the way, multiple words. It's not just idol, it's all these words that say the same thing. No images. And we hammered that one home and, and, and left, again, a, a little bit of question with, with a few folks. And one person come up afterwards and go, well, okay, what about like a painting of an eagle on my wall? No images, I said to him, and he shrunk away. <laughs> no, I, I mean, obviously, it's no images of me. 
God is saying. Nothing to represent me. Now, if that painting of the eagle on the wall is your Elohim and you're praying to him, you got a big problem, buddy. If that sculpture of the bull in the backyard that, that has a little fountain with it, and by the way, that would be weird anyway, but let's say you had one. If you're out there bowing down to it, we got a problem. God didn't say no artwork, no craftsmanship, no trinkets in your homes, no, no designs of any kind, no Santa Claus figurines on, at Christmas. He didn't say that. He said no images that represent me. That's the point. Now, some of you on Sunday, I don't know if anyone here tonight felt this way, but some felt like I just really went off on the chosen, on the show. Boy, Rick, you just tore into it, and that wasn't fair because I really like that show. I really like The Chosen. That's fine. You can love watching The Chosen. You can enjoy the show. You can think it's very well done. I haven't seen it. I can't even speak to that. But what was really funny is on Sunday I said, if you think that I'm just going off on The Chosen, you've missed the whole point. I got three emails and a text that missed the whole point. Of people saying, what? I just, I just, I like that show and I don't appreciate how you, hey, guys, listen. The command against idolatry, and we talked about that. The, the, the characterization in the chosen, the Jesus in the chosen, guess what? This is going to shock you. It's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. It's an actor playing Jesus. You might like the artistic license that they've taken. You might like the way it plays. It may be comforting, encouraging, you know, for you as a follower of Jesus. It might even be used by the Lord to bring someone to Christ. I'm fine with all that, but that's not Jesus. And I can prove it to you. How many of you have seen Jesus of Nazareth? Remember the old British Jesus? Okay, and, and think about the two depictions of Jesus. If you've seen The Chosen. If you haven't, you can pick any two Jesus depictions in any two Jesus movies that are out there. But Jesus of Nazareth, that actor, and Jesus in The Chosen are completely different. The one in Jesus of Nazareth is very serious. It's very dark and brooding. He's got those piercing eyes and he speaks with the British accent. <laughs> the Jesus and the Chosen is laid back and likable and, and warm and, and attractive. Which one is him? Neither one. They're not Jesus. No form or image because, I'm not, you know, again, if you're a Bible student, you know what's truth, you know what's not, whatever, but when we look at forms and images and they come between us and God and they become now the image of God for us, that's a problem. I shared with our staff today, how many of you have read Lord of the Rings? Every hand went up and I said, how many of you read Lord of the Rings, then saw the movies, then tried to read it again? And when you read it again, who did you see when you read about Frodo? Elijah Wood. That's now Frodo. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, Elijah Wood is Frodo. If you ever read the books again, it's totally ruined the book for me because my old image of Frodo shot, gone, out. But that's what we do. We grab onto these things and then they, they kind of get in the way. And God is so serious about idolatry. He says, I don't want anything between us. Nothing between you and me. Come near to me. No images. Nothing that could slow your appreciation of who I really am. Nothing that can keep from you from knowing me by character and, and by personality and how I present myself in my word. This is how God says, look, look at this. This will tell you who I am. And all the other stuff, just know it can get in the way. Psalm 73, 28, as for me, the nearness of God 
is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So that's the first two words. And Moses is going to, by the way, apply those two words even more so in chapters 12 and 13. You might want to keep track of this because, again, it's the outline for what's coming. But you can note the first and second command in verses 6 now through uh, verse 10. First and second command will be applied uniquely in chapters 12 and 13. Verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Why? Because his name and his nature are the same. Especially in Hebrew thought, the name is the nature. The name is the representation. And so you don't separate out the name. It's just, ah, it's just his name, whatever, make fun of it. No, no, no. The name of God speaks of the person of God, and you don't mess with that. In Deuteronomy 12 through 14, Moses is going to apply this, and he's going to apply it specifically to the place where God chooses to put his name in the promised land. At first, that'll be Shiloh. For 369 years, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle will rest on a plateau in Shiloh. Some of you have seen that plateau. Pretty cool. But then from there, it would have an interesting journey, ultimately ending up in Yerushalayim. Jerusalem. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God is actually going to place his name in the land. And we'll see more of that. Verses 12 through 15, we come to the fourth word, which is observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, Moses is going to take this law, this commandment, and he's going to apply it to the calendar year. In Deuteronomy 15 and 16, he'll continue on to talk about all of the feasts and festivals through the calendar year, and, and Shabbat is applied all the way through. But I want you to see something here. As Moses repeats this command, there are two subtle differences in his sermon from the Lord giving the same command back in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And you can look it up if you'd like to, but I will just point these out. The first difference is this. When God spoke the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he said, with the fourth word, he said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does Moses say? Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, no big deal. No, it is a big deal. Every time there's a different word in Scripture, it's a big deal. It's always intentional. I keep saying this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, verse 12. And then down in verse 15, he finishes that command by saying again, observe the Sabbath day. Only the second word is a different observe than the first word. So what he first says is observe the Sabbath day. That's the word shamor. Shamor, it means keep it, preserve it, guard it. And I love the old saying, it's absolutely true. More than the Jews have kept Shabbat. Shabbat has kept the Jews. Through all the, the years, through the many drivings out from different, different countries, the, the mistreatment of the Jewish people, down through time, it is Shabbat. And Jewish people will tell you this, that has kept them Jewish. It's that weekly stopping, resting reminder of who God is and who they are as a people. And it has kept the Jewish people even when they were dispersed throughout all the world. Shamor, keep it. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day. Preserve it. And then the other observe at the very end in verse 15 is assault, which means, and I like this, work it. Yeah, 
Asot means to produce, to fashion, to execute, to manufacture, to perform. That's what the word is used for. And Moses in the sermon comes to the end of this Sabbath day, rest and says, make sure that you work it, baby. Work the Sabbath day. Work the Sabbath. Moses, are you just in preacher mode and pulling things out of your mind that, you know, what, what, what's, work the Sabbath, he says. Hebrews chapter four, verse nine says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. By the way, that's a sentence written in heartbreak by the Hebrew pastor. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's talking about Israel there, and he's saying they have yet to enter their rest. They have not rested. They are still in a place of striving. They still haven't come to find their rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also rested from all his works, as God did from his. You know how you will know when Israel has entered into their rest? It's when they stop working the law so hard to prove themselves as a people. It's when they finally receive grace. But the Hebrew pastor goes on and says, therefore, let us, I love the phrase, be diligent to enter that rest. Work it. Work the Sabbath. Work hard to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, think about that. It's actually somewhat applicable today. Most of us have to work awfully hard to take some time off. Have you been in that place? When vacation is looming for me, I work harder probably the last couple of weeks before vacation than any other time. Because you gotta get stuff done for while you're gone so stuff continues while you're gone so when you get back, you're not overloaded with all kinds of stuff that you should have had done before you left. You work it so you can get to the rest. What about on your weekly days off? We have to, I have to schedule downtime. I have to say, Saturday, I'm not doing anything. And you know what I do then? I get up Saturday morning and Cheryl's got a honeydew list and the next thing I know, I've spent the whole day working. It's supposed to be a day off. Well, that's just not okay. Any of you just sit and read a book for an entire day, watch a movie, maybe have a snack, maybe have another snack, just because you can. It, it, you know, it runs so against the grain of our American way of thinking. I got a day off, I gotta get stuff done. That's not Shabbat. We work to enter the rest. We have to work to leave off the projects and set aside the cell phone and stop the madness. We have to intentionally stop and rest. And that, I think, is kind of what Moses is implying. Make sure you observe the Sabbath. Make sure you work the Sabbath. Work it. Get whatever you have to do to take the day and actually rest. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 16, well, it says the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Once again, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, he had just healed a lame man. And they're all upset about the healing. It's just amazing what took place in those days. He healed a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue, and they go after him for healing on the Sabbath. How dare you make someone's life better on the Sabbath? And they come after him this time again, and Jesus answers them and says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus worked the Sabbath. 
Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus loved on the Sabbath. Jesus ministered to people on the Sabbath. Jesus taught on the Sabbath. Jesus cared and had compassion for people on the Sabbath. Because the work of Jesus always yields rest. It always brings peace. So observe, that is preserve, and produce, work the Sabbath. And Moses adds one more sabbatical intention in verse 15. This was not in what God originally said. Moses now tacks this one in here. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe, to keep, to work the Sabbath day. That was not in God's original commandment. God's original commandment was, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, because in the creation, God worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested. So he ties to, he, God tied it to creation. Moses now adds this additional react, reality. I, I think it's marvelous Put it this way, Sabbath is not only a reminder of creation, it is now a reminder of redemption. Now you rest because you've come into your redemption, because you've been fully delivered, because now you're in the land. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, and by the way, this would always be an issue for Israel. Through their entire existence as a nation, and I would even say up to today, this has been a problem. Not keeping Sabbath. Nobody works harder at keeping Sabbath than the Jewish people in the land of Israel. I mean, it is hard work to take that day off. The 39 different categories with tons of different subsets within those categories of things they cannot do. And so you've got, and I love them, the Sabbath elevators. <laughs> so you don't have to push a button so there's not a spark so you haven't lit a fire. So Sabbath elevators stop at every floor. I don't tell people when we first take them to Israel, I don't normally tell them that. I like to let them figure it out on their own on Sabbath when they come to get down to the bus and they're the last ones there and you always know who doesn't know about the Sabbath elevators because everybody's on the bus and they come running out. I stopped at every floor. Sabbath elevator. <laughs> they work awfully hard to make that happen and God said, Isaiah 30 verse 15, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then he adds this very strong condemning line, but you were not willing. You could have rest. You could have peace. But Israel, just like me, gets up Saturday morning and has a laundry list and goes to work. God says, rest. Rest in your redemption. Rest in your redemption. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, as it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, praise the Lord, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's rest, man. Jesus said, come to me, Matthew 11, 28, and 29. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I was thinking, when I was sitting back there behind the drums earlier and looking out at you all tonight, and I was thinking, God, bless this fellowship tonight with rest for coming out here in the middle of an August work week. And I hope by the time you leave here, you will have experienced, if you haven't already had some of the rest 
of the presence of the Spirit of God. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Best place you could be right now is in the presence of Jesus to receive his rest. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Sabbath is the only command that is not repeated for the church in the New Testament. Did you know that? Ten commandments, nine of the ten are all repeated and applied to the church, and we are called to follow and obey just like Israel was. But Sabbath is not repeated. Why? Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Because in Jesus we have our Sabbath. Because he is our rest. And by the way, taking a day off and doing nothing is not a bad idea. Get yourself a little Nintendo Switch by Animal Crossing and sit and play all day long <laughs> and just rest. Well, the next one uh, following that is then honor your father and mother. That's the fifth word. That's in verse 16. Honor your father and mother. Now, Moses is going to take and interestingly apply that in Deuteronomy 16, 17, and 18, but he's going to apply it in terms of honoring judges, kings, priests, and prophets. Why? Because, get this, obedience, respect, subordination, the servant heart, it's all learned at home. It all begins with mom and dad. That's where you begin to become the servant that God wants you to be later. That you later in a job, you submit to the employer. Later, you know, you submit to the governing authorities. I know we don't want to these days, but we are called to submit. And we learn that first at home. And so God says, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. In fact, Paul applied it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, he said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, he quotes, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. And I remember my own dad saying, son, do you want to live long on the earth? Obey your parents. Yes, Dad. He goes on and he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, I, I, I have to underscore that it says to anger. It doesn't say, do not provoke your children to frustration by stupid puns. That's okay. <laughs> do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Children, you have a responsibility to your parents. Parents, fathers, you have a responsibility to your children. He goes on and, and still applying the same thing. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of heart as to Christ. What? Yeah, you're an indentured servant. You ran out of money. You had a debt to owe and you had to sell yourself into slavery. You submit to your master as though he were Christ Jesus above you. Wow. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good, whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then he says, and masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So Paul challenges slaves and children Children, we get slaves? Well, think of it in these days as employees. Paul would challenge every one of us as employees in how we respond to our employer. Yeah, well, he's kind of a jerk. Doesn't matter. Respond to him as though you're responding to Christ. Serve him, serve her as though you're serving Christ Jesus himself. 
And then he says, they need to, children, slaves, be obedient. Fathers and masters, we might apply masters to bosses. Be Christ-like. Treat your employees. If you happen to be a boss, if you happen to be in charge, treat your employees in the way Jesus would treat them. But understand that it all begins at home and honoring your father and your mother. And then in this list of commandments, again back in chapter five, we come to the five love your neighbor one-liners. And they just come out like bullet points, one right after another. Uh, He says, verse 17, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. So the final five, and they are all neighborly commandments. We've looked at these more closely before, but the the first half are, are toward God, and then there's the hub of, of parents, and then it's all to neighbors. You shall not murder, verse 17, the sixth word. Might be surprised to find that this command, you shall not be uh, murder, has the greatest focus of any of the Ten Commandments in Moses' sermon. He spends more time on, on relating this and applying this than on anything else. He has the longest application section, which is Deuteronomy 19 through 22, verse 8. And in all, Moses will devote no less than 72 verses to the value of human life. Oh, that Americans would understand that. It's amazing for all of our for all the attitudes and all the politics and everything that's in play and all the lawlessness we see today and all the murders that are constant, all the shootings, all the gang violence, all the inner city violence, all of this stuff that we're watching, it's just, it's like law and order is spiraling out of control, which is what happens when you ask the law and order to step down. But we're watching all of this take place and you know what, at the same time we're still, this country is still murdering a million babies every year. Thou shalt not murder. America's going to have to answer for this. You shall not murder. And so Moses is heavily focused on the value of human life because God is. Uh, The seventh word, you shall not commit adultery. Chapters 22 through 23, verse 18, deals with adultery. But the application's fascinating. You'll see when we get there. But he begins talking about improper mixtures and combinations And then he gets into sexual immoralities, and it's all the application of you shall not commit adultery. You need to understand the word adultery in Hebrew is tenop, which is not translated like we think. We see the word adultery, and we think, oh, good. Well, as long as I'm not married, so single people, you're good to go. You can't commit adultery. Yes, you can, because the Hebrew word tenop means any and all sexual immorality in or outside of marriage, pre-marriage, post-marriage, or in marriage. It's all of it. So adultery is any sexual sin, and that command is for all people, tanap, adultery. The eighth word is you shall not steal in verse 19, and he's going to apply that in Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 24, 7. If you're jotting this down, great. You You can refer back to it later if you want to. But the focus on you shall not steal is interesting because he broadens it to all manner of theft, including but not limited to divorce, That's part of the you shall not steal application. You're stealing something from another. The the stealing of security during a wartime. He calls that theft. Ultimately, he deals with human trafficking. You shall not steal. The ninth word, verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's a big one because that's the one 
that ended up getting Jesus hung on the cross, the bearing of false witness, the lies that were spoken against him, the refusal to give a fair and just trial to Jesus. But it's interesting because this was right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, you shall not bear false witness. Actually, no, I'm, I'm ahead of myself on that one. The devil, Jesus said in John 8, 44, John 8, 44, the devil was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Moses deals with that in chapters 24, 25. Finally, the 10th word, and I really wanted to buzz through these faster than I have, but oh well. The 10th word, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything, which is pretty all-inclusive. By the way, the Hebrew word for anything is fascinating. It means anything. <laughs> you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And again, all-inclusive. In chapters 25 and 26, Moses will apply that command. And he begins with a kinsman redeemer, the, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer's responsibility to his deceased brother to take his deceased brother's wife and produce offspring for his deceased brother. And it's all based in the context of you shall not covet. You don't covet what's your brother's. You honor and respect what is your brother's. And then he goes on to unfair weights and measures which is all really about greed and covetousness. And he ends with the offering of first fruits, which I find fascinating. What does that have to do with coveting? The offering of first fruits is in part to, designed to encourage contentment. So that I'm all, not always looking over the fence at, the, at my neighbor's field, but I'm offering first fruits to the Lord and recognizing how much he has blessed me. And in recognizing my blessings, contentment comes, coveting goes away. You know, coveting and greed comes when we are discontent. That's kind of the cycle of covetousness is discontent. Coveting actually fuels more discontentment, which in turn makes you more covetous of other people's things. So you're more discontent. Then Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, this is, this is the case with men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The more godly I am, the more I can get out of it. And Paul says godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So that's the commandments, and he runs right through all 10 of them, and Moses is preaching now, again, the relevance of the law, and he will get to these and begin to apply them as we've seen. Well, verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all of you or to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud and the thick gloom with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. That's possible that it's possible that it was, the Ten Commandments were written half on one tablet, half on the other. It is more likely that they were written completely on two tablets, so there were two copies of this covenant, one for God and one for Israel. And that was the way covenant was written at the time too. Two copies, so two tablets. And when you heard, verse 23, the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me and all the heads of your tribes and your elders. 
You said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today what the Lord God speaks with man, that the Lord God speaks with man, yet he lives. Then why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. The people were terrified. Moses is reminding them of this. Remember back when God was talking to you all, you were shaking in your boots. And what's interesting here, in these five verses, Moses refers five times to the voice of God. The voice of God. You've heard the voice of God. The voice of God. Five times there at Horeb. And truly, five being the number of grace in the Bible, it was by grace alone that the people heard the voice and were not completely wiped out. But he repeats also that phrase, that we learned on Sunday, Boer Ba'esh, blazing with fire there in verse 23. That, that phrase connected to calling. This was where you heard your calling, where you heard from the Lord, you were called by the Lord. And then the people said, verse 27, go near and hear all the Lord our God has to say or says, and then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear it and do it. The Lord heard the voice of your words, Moses said, when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. You know what's happening here? The Lord hears their words he commends their words, but he knows their hearts. We'll do whatever God says. Just, just intervene for us, Moses. You go listen to him and come tell us, and we'll do it. And God goes, that would be great if it was true. I hear a lot of emotion in this. I don't know about you, but the longing in God's heart when he says, oh, that they had such a heart in them. You normally don't start a sentence with, oh, if you're not feeling something. And God is feeling the weight of his people's rebellion before they even rebel and their inability to do what they promised that they would do, and that is keep his law. Oh, that they had such a heart, that they, that they would keep my law and do as I say. Do you ever stop and think about what pains the heart of God? You ever just pause and think in your own life, have I not just offended the Lord, um, not just come across as unholy to the Lord? You ever stop and think, have I hurt his heart? You know, the only reason you and I know joy and sorrow and, and pleasure and pain and all these different things is because God created them into us because he feels them. And when we sin against him, it's not just, you've done wrong, I'm coming after you. It's, not again. That my behavior might pain the heart of God is probably something we ought to consider a little more often when we have sin choices right before our eyes. Does this please the Lord? Or does this one hurt his heart? Would he say of you, of me, oh, that they had such a heart at the bridge that they would just keep my word? It's hard to do it. And where do you go to... To, to get strength to keep his word. I mean, this is a big word. 
How, how do you do that? Jesus said to Peter and James and John in the garden, three years of constant discipleship and walking with them, being with Jesus, and he comes back after praying and, and just struggling over what's about to happen and anguish, and he comes back, and there they are, sound asleep, sawing logs, and Jesus says, Peter, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Man, I could translate, if ever I needed you to pray, tonight's the night. Peter, keep praying. And then he says this, and you know what he's talking about. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here I am, spirit is willing, flesh is weak guy. How many times have you told the Lord, I'm good to go, Father, and the next day you're good to gone. The spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. I think, where do I get the strength of heart to keep his word? And Jesus gives us the key. You ready for it? John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, this word will not be a problem for you. We go about it all backwards. We go commandment first, then love. God says, no, love first. And the commands will follow. Learn to love me. Come near to me. Come to know who I am and, and that I am love. And it's love then that yields the motivation to keep the commandments, right? We'll see that more in just a second. But verse 30 continuing. Go say to them, God says, return to your tents. But as for you, Moses, stand here by me. Moses is recounting this. That I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess so that you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall, not, you shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. You shall not turn to the right and you shall not turn to the left. We could say you shall not turn to the GOP, and you shall not turn to the Democrats. <laughs> and I'm, I'm being a little facetious here, but, but my friends, when did the church get so political? When did we start carrying the banner of one political party over another? And where do we feel justified that if someone is not of our political persuasion that they are less than we are? I don't understand this. The divisions, and I'm just going to go ahead and say this right now, because if I didn't offend people with the chosen, i got to find something. <laughs> the divisions that I see in our country over masks and vaccinations blows my mind. And I'm not talking what your choice is or what you've decided to do or not do. But I see people as far divided over those two issues as I've ever seen. And you know what? What's the big deal? The question is not whether or not I have the right to say no to a vaccination or yes to a vaccination. The question is not whether I have the right to go wherever I want not wearing a mask or I should wear a mask. The question is what would Jesus do? Isn't, isn't it? I mean, am I, am I wrong on that one? Someone please correct me if I am. But I am so sick of watching the church throw away a massive opportunity to be Jesus in this world. I think we're missing this one, gang. And I'm not talking about y'all. We're perfect here at the bridge. But I'm talking about the rest <laughs> of the church. He says, don't turn aside to the right 
or to the left. He says, go forward. Understand, this is not a driven race. It is a directed walk. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25, let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Why? Because that's where Jesus is. Watch the path of your feet, Deuteronomy 4, 26, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. By the way, and I'm saying this politically, there is evil on the right and on the left. And I think we can all say amen to that. It's true. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. He says, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, Whenever you turn to the right or turn to the left. You know what he's saying in that? He's not saying that the voice will say, turn right now, turn left here. He's saying, no, your tendency is to wander off to the right or to the left, and God is saying, I want you to walk straight. So when you start to wander to the right, the voice will say, uh, 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 straighten out. Where's Jesus? This way. You start to wander off to the left. No, 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 come on, straighten out. Go this way. Keep going straight. We are constantly distracted to the right and to the left. He calls us to walk straight, to follow him, and to listen up. Chapter six, verse one. Now this is the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Notice this. The very first verse of chapter 6 begins. This is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments. And yes, that's correctly translated. Commandment is singular. It even has a definite article before it. This is the commandment. He doesn't say these are the commandments, which is what I would expect at the beginning of chapter six because it follows chapter five. And throughout chapter five, he's given us the 10 commandments. So you would expect the next thing he says is, these are the commandments. That's not what he says. Moses now is not looking back. He's looking forward. He's setting up what he is about to declare as the commandment. And there is just one. This is the commandment, singular. The statutes and the judgments, those are plural. And Moses is about to do something here. He is about to sum up all the covenant commands with one commandment. Here, verse four, he begins, here is the command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's not the commandment, that's setting up the commandment. But it's just one commandment that's coming. It's right around the corner. But stop right here. Hear, O Israel. Hear, Shema. This is the Shema. The hero Israel. It is it, it, Jewish people, even non-practicing Jews, have a tendency to know what the Shema is. It is the hero Israel. Probably the most famous few verses in Hebrew history. 
is right here. Hear, O Israel, Shema. But understand that the word Shema is not like we think of here. I tell my, my son, take out the trash. I heard you. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. How do you know I didn't? Because you haven't taken out the trash. <laughs> we say here, and we think it's just the sound going in the ear. The Jewish person says Shema, and they know it is here with intent to obey. Hear, O Israel. You haven't heard if you haven't obeyed. So hearing and obedience are intertwined in the Shema, which goes from verses four through verse nine. It is still repeated today as the single confession of faith by observant Jews. It's a daily statement that they will speak the Shema. It's not a prayer, it's a declaration of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, they will say. <laughs> it begins with the oneness of God. This singular command that sums up all the rest, the commandment, begins with the oneness of God as the basis for the commandment. And that word one, if you were sitting in a Jewish synagogue, you might not be surprised to hear it said that way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. They will emphasize it, kind of a rebuke to Christians and their crazy notion that God is three. Where did those wacko people get that idea? The Lord is one. That strange doctrine of the Trinity that we preach in Christianity. But first of all, understand that the New Testament never denies the oneness of God. You won't find anything in the New Testament that says God is not one, he's three. Wait, wait, are you undermining the Trinity? No, stay with me. The New Testament never uses the word trinity or triune. You won't find those words in the Bible. Rick, are you undermining the doctrine of the trinity? No, I'm not. But you won't find the words in the Bible. What you will find, though these are not biblical phrases, those phrases triune God or the trinity do describe a profound biblical truth that is, by the way, throughout the scriptures. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and when he says gods, he's talking about spiritual authorities, but he says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Wait, hey, there's one God and there's one Lord, so two different guys. No, there's one God and there's one Lord. And the one Lord is the one God. And the one God is the one Lord. Yeah, but you just said Father and, 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 and Jesus. Yeah. Even the Shema contains this curious conundrum, a rabbinical feather ruffling. They don't like this. They try to avoid it and explain it away, but he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And one seems so clear and so unequivocal, but he said the Lord is our God. What did he just say there? Yahweh is our Elohim. In the Hebrew, El is one God. Elah is two. Elohe or Elohim is three or more. And he says, the Lord, Yahweh, is our Elohim. He doesn't say the Lord is our El. The Lord is one. The Lord is our three or more. 
the Lord is one. It doesn't seem to make sense that Yahweh is our Elohim. And so what they've done is they've dismissed it. This, this is what they would call the royal we. We. The royal, the majestic we. Like Queen Victoria sitting on her throne saying, come thither and we shall hear thee now. What do you mean we? There's only one person in the room, Queenie. Just you. We would like to confer upon thee a gift. We who? Who's the we? And it's the royal we and, and even rabbis today. Some commentators who want to deny the Trinity, they'll say, well, yeah, this whole idea of the, of, of the Lord is our God, the Lord is our Elohim, the plurality, it, it's just, it's like the, it's the royal we. That, that's, it's just implying his majesty is what they'll say. Here's the problem. There is no biblical history of the royal we as applied to God ever, ever. You won't find it anywhere in the scriptures. And the earliest use of the royal we was by King Henry II in 1169 AD when he was trying to deify his crown. It has nothing to do with when God is referred to as Elohim, a plurality, it's because that is who he is. It's because this is his character. And we haven't even gotten to the New Testament right here in the Shema. The Jewish people were to say, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim, our plurality of God. Yahweh is our gods, is how we probably ought to translate that right there. What do we do with this? There's only run, one royal we who is one in three. <laughs> He's one and he is three. It is the mystery of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now there are two words here, and I gotta take just a second. I know we're a little bit over, but hey, you're in a good place. The mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. This is so fundamental to faith and yet so misunderstood even among Christians today. There are a couple of words you need to know. There's the Hebrew word yahid. Yahid is a singular absolute. So when you see the word Yahid in the Bible, it means only one, just one, right? We see this in Genesis 22, verse 2, where the Lord says to Abraham, take now your son, your Yahid son, your one and only son, no other son, just this son, absolute, he's talking about Isaac. It's a stunning statement because God basically completely discounts Ishmael because Ishmael is not the covenant son. The only son was the son through Abraham and Sarah. Take now your Yahid son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And you know the story. So there's that word Yahid, which is a singular absolute. That's not what's used here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our Elohim. The Lord is Achad. And Achad is the compound unity. How do you know? Listen to how achad is used. Genesis chapter one, verse five is the first time we see this word in the Bible. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, achad day. One day. But the one day has evening and morning. There are two parts to the one day. There's a plurality there. The next time we see it, Genesis chapter two, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become Achad, one flesh. But there's two of them. Uh-huh. And they're one. Huh. Exodus 26, verse 6. This one's interesting to me. It says, you shall make 50 clasps of gold. 
and join the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle will be a chad. One. But it's a unit. There are 50 clasps. And there are all these different uh, aspects of the tabernacle to make it Echad, to make it a plurality of one, a unified one. He says, you shall make the 50 clasps of bronze. Put the clasps into the loops and join together the tent so that it will be all these different sections of the tent and the poles and the tapestries and all the clasps shall be Echad. But there are all these aspects of this oneness. It's a unified plurality of one. That's how the word is used. It's used in multiple other places in the Hebrew scriptures that way. And that's the word that Moses uses here. O Israel, the Lord is our Elohim. The Lord is Echad, a unity of oneness, a plurality. And Echad as a unity of oneness is firmly established before we ever get here. So that when the word is used of God, it's pretty obvious this is a plurality of one. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So there at the very beginning, before we've gotten past the second verse of Scripture, we see God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then John later on comes around, John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if he stopped there, we would have gone, okay, then God is just the word that just applies to God, God the Father, right? Well, John 1:14 then says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this only begotten from the Father, this word made flesh, Jesus, who is one with God and was with God in the beginning, now we know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all there at creation. That's your triune God. It never says triune. We never see the word Trinity, but we have just seen the triune God, and we see him interestingly in other ways. In fact, I love this example, Matthew chapter 4, four verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus so here's Jesus, came up out of the water immediately, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am in whom I'm well pleased. Father, Spirit, Son. All in the same place, all at the same time, but distinct, and yet echad, a plurality of oneness. I love the conversation that Jesus had the night of his betrayal with, with Thomas, who said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? John 14, 5, and Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so there's a distinction there between Jesus the Son and God the Father, and yet Jesus said, if you had known me, if you really knew me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him. You've seen him. Jesus on this fateful night looks at his disciples that night. He goes, you've seen God. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? <laughs> he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? But he doesn't stop there. Not only does Jesus remarkably 
And by the way, blasphemously, if it wasn't true, declare himself equal to and one with the Father. But he goes on just a few moments later and he says, you know what, I'm gonna ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth, who the world cannot see because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wait, Jesus, are you gonna come or is the spirit of truth gonna come? Yes. Oh. <laughs> And Jesus so beautifully explains this whole thing. He says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will, because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This, this intimacy is overwhelming. Now, after all that, are you still struggling to understand the triune nature of the singular God? If your answer inside is a quiet, yeah, welcome to the club, so am I. Because this is overwhelming. And I remind you that the proof, the evidence is here of God being three and yet one of this plurality, this achad. It's all over scripture and yet it is mind-boggling because I'm not God. I'm limited human. But this expression of God, it, it, for all the years that I've studied the Trinity and it has been many, it still eludes my complete comprehension. I still though I can lay out all the scriptures and present it to you, I still sit here and go, wow, this is, wow. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. But remember this, let me just throw another wrench into the works, you've been made in his image. Do you know what that means? It means you're triune like he is. We are all triune beings, that is we have a, a spirit, we have a, a soul, we have a body, we're made like him. Now back to the Shema, real quickly here, or not. This is the singular commandment. So it's interesting that in, in talking about how God is singular and yet a plurality, that he is a chad, same with the commandments. This is the commandment and the statutes and the judgments. So there are multiple statutes and judgments that fall in with this one commandment, the singular commandment, and here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What does that mean? He just spoke to your trinity, that you are triune, that your heart is your spirit, your soul is the, the mind, the seat of intellect, the reason, and your might is your flesh such as it used to be. Spirit, soul, flesh, you have a triune nature. We are made in his image. Now, don't get too excited because you can't split up and be in multiple places at once. I know what some of you would do. You'd split yourself up and part of you would play uh, your Nintendo Switch on a Saturday and the rest of you would be out working in the yard. You can't do that. Obviously, I can't do that. Spirit, soul, body are irrevocably linked until death do me part, <laughs> you know? And or the rapture where spirit, soul, and body at that point, either you're caught up if you're alive, spirit, soul, and body, all that you are, or if you have died and your body is in the grave or in the ground and your spirit, your soul has gone on to be with the Lord, there will be an instantaneous twinkling of an eye glorification that takes place where spirit, soul, and body is all put back together. First Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. In eternity, 
There's no indication that you can separate body, soul, and spirit. But see, God, who is one, can. Can move, can interact separately, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet they are one. And that's the best I can do to explain it. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, the foremost commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And it's a little further expression, but it's still all three of this, of this nature, heart, soul, and mind, and strength. That is the physical body. Jesus says the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There, are, there is no other commandment greater than these. And he draws from the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he also draws from, it's Leviticus 19, 21, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's, that's the whole, that's the singular, that's the commandment. Love the Lord your God. And then the statutes and the judgments, they all fall in underneath that. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two forty, 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so this wonderful singular commandment expressed in the Shema is the ultimate summation of the entire Torah law. Love. Love the Lord your God. And why should I? We love because he loved us first. 1 John four nineteen, Verse 6. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on, by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the human response to this in Judaism was phylacteries, or in Hebrew, the tephilim, uh, leather, little leather boxes that would contain I forget what the word is, but basically a little tiny scroll that would have some scripture written on it. And they made these little boxes and they would literally strap them on their heads. You'll see them in Israel today and it's, it's quite a sight. And the bigger the box, the more righteous the dude, you know. And they'll, they'll, they'll strap them onto their right wrist as well. The right wrist on the forehead, phylacteries. They will also, they make mezuzahs. And the mezuzah is a little box made of really anything, uh, marble, wood, it can be made of, of metal, and, it can be, and it's nailed to the doorpost and stuck inside the mezuzah is, again, a little scripture, usually the Shema. So the Shema might be on the right hand, it might be on the forehead, it might be on, on the doorpost, and they're like, see, we just did exactly what God told us to do. Put it on my hand, put it on my forehead, write it on my doorpost. <laughs> Found a physical way to do it. Satan has a coming counterfeit practice when, um, when something is applied to the right hand or the forehead. Revelation 13, 16, the number or name of the beast. And, and I'm not saying that the phylacteries or tephilim or the Jewish practices are satanic. Do not misunderstand me. Satan is satanic. Satan always has a counterfeit to what God does. God calls his people first and foremost, I want this on your hand. I want it in your mind. I want it in your heart. When you walk in your house, I want you thinking about it. When you leave your house, I want you thinking about it. When you're sitting down with your kids around the fire, I want you talking about it. When you're taking the day off, I want you to be sharing this. He wants this to be their lives. 
And, and just like the no graven images thing we talked about earlier, when we take the spiritual truths of God and we make them into these physical things, we can easily miss the point. And the Pharisees did. Jesus came and talked to them about their outwardly showy, religious, superficial approach. He said in Matthew 23, 4, you tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but you yourselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. He says, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. Look how holy I am. And the whole thing completely missed the heart of God. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always. And the whole point of this, God is saying, Moses is saying, keep the word near. Your word I have treasured in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 11. Verse 10, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Sounds like Barack Obama, but it's not. <laughs> when Obama made that statement, you remember that politically just a little while ago, and, and when he was president, he made the statement, well, you didn't build that. Well, the truth was, yeah, the, the small business owner probably did build it. When God says it here, they didn't build it. They didn't plant. All these things, when they moved into the land, were already there. God gave them to them to take over. Vineyards which, and olive trees which you did not plant. And you eat and are satisfied, verse 11. Then verse 12, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is Elkanah, a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. By the way, quick side note, God is referred to from time to time as El. Elkanah, El Shaddai. El being the singular, the one, and, and when he's referred to that way, he, it, we're talking about God the Father. Or perhaps Jesus the Son, depending on the context. So one aspect of the triune God is referred to when he's called El Kanah, jealous God, but he is still the Lord our God, the Lord our Elohim, the Lord is Echad. Read on, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Sound familiar? As you tested him at Massa. Moses recalls when the people, an early doubting of God, just out from Egypt, they're thirsty, they're whining, they're complaining, and they're testing God. Do you know how they tested God in that moment? It wasn't just, we're thirsty. It's what they said. Exodus 17, 7, Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel because they tested the Lord, saying, here's the test, is the Lord among us or not? See, the grumbling and the attitude, it went beyond thirst. It went to them saying, if God's really here, have him prove it. Have him give us water. Have him prove it. This is Exodus 17. Do you remember what happened in Exodus 15? When he parted the Red Sea? Have God prove it? They were testing him. And Moses reminds them of this. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test like you did back at, at Massa. You ever do that? You ever put God to the test? 
Maybe you don't think of it that way. You ever say, God, you there, prove it. I'll believe in you, but you gotta show yourself. You gotta show yourself to be powerful in this. God, I need you to do this, and if you don't, I'm not sure if you're really around so much. Show me. And the devil baited Jesus to test the Father. The devil said, take a flying leap off the pinnacle of the temple. Matthew chapter four, verse six. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. By the way, he misquotes that scripture. He knows the Bible, but he also knows how to twist it. He says, jump off the temple. Prove that you are of God. Show the people, it'll be fantastic. They'll all come running, they'll all believe in you. It'll be a quick step to glory. Jump from the temple. We call that a leap of faith. But understand this. God never calls us to blind faith. God never says, take a leap and see if you land. That's not God. That's the enemy. The enemy says, take a leap and see what happens. God gives everything we need for faith. In fact, God drops faith into our hearts. And then he confirms that faith. And so Jesus responds to Satan, Matthew 4, 7. On the other hand, it's written, You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And because of that, we know where Jesus' heart was in the wilderness. (laughs) Deuteronomy. He was meditating on Deuteronomy. Maybe we'll talk about that more on, on Sunday. Meditating on, thinking about Deuteronomy, and instead of testing God, why not try his word? Why not just try his word? Put his word to the test. What I mean is walk it out. Do what it says. Follow the prescriptions here. See what happens. Verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. And when your son ask you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. Verse 25, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment, this commandment singular again. Note that. It will be righteousness for us if we're careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. And Moses does not say if we're careful to observe all these commandments. He says this commandment. What commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. If we keep that commandment, it is righteousness to us. Meaning? Meaning there's only one way to attain righteousness. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous 
will live by his faith. There's your righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So what do I do with all this? Keep this commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the rest will take care of itself. You made it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. Thank you for your heart. I think that's the most stirring thing to me so far in this great book, in this Sermon of Moses. Father, I feel like we keep hearing your heart. We keep hearing your passion. We keep hearing your love for your people, and we keep realizing, wow, it's it's really not about law and regulation and, and legalistic demands. It's love. And Father, I I just pray as we continue through these things that our love would increase. As Paul said, the goal of our instruction is love. And so may we have such a heart in us, Father, to love you because you first loved us. May we have such a heart in us, Father, to love each other the way that you first loved us. And to not turn to the right or to the left, but eyes fixed on Jesus. May our feet go straight forward Through you, Lord Jesus, to the Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.